Hello, memoir readers and writers. I've added some new merchandise to the Let's Talk Memoir store. I've got travel mugs and t-shirts and post-it notes and tote bags and all kinds of goodies for you and your favorite memoir lover. You can find a link to the Let's Talk Memoir store in three places, the show notes at the podcast app where you listen, my Instagram, which is at Ronit Plank in the bio, and that's a great place to get updates on the show anyway, so I hope you'll visit and then follow me, and also at RonitPlank.com on the main page and also on the Let's Talk Memoir page. I am having a great time designing some of these items, but if you visit the store and you have an idea for something that you don't see there, please message me on Instagram or you can contact me on my website and I will make it for you. And all throughout January 2024, I am keeping this survey about how you listen to Let's Talk Memoir and what kind of memoir content you'd like open. So you can also find the link for that survey. It's about 10 questions in the show notes and chime in so I can start designing episodes for you with you in mind. And now on to the show. Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Gretchen Charrington, who grew up the daughter of Pulitzer Prize winning and U.S. Poet Laureate Richard Eberhardt. Her childhood homes were filled with literary greats from Robert Frost to Anne Sexton to James Dickey, a life she captured in her award-winning memoir, Poetic License. But like the paternal grandfather she never knew, Charrington chose a career in business where she coached hundreds of powerful men on how to change their companies and themselves. Her second book, The Butcher, the Embezzler, and the Fall Guy, a true crime investigative family memoir, is an exploration of the first 20 years of the meatpacking giant Hormel Foods as she pieces together her grandfather's role, if he had one, in a national embezzlement scandal that nearly brought the company to its knees in 1921. Charrington's essays have appeared widely in Huffington Post, Covey Club, Lit Hub, The Millions, Yankee, Electric Lit, Hippocampus, Quartz, and others. Welcome, Gretchen. Well, thank you so much, Ronit. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. I'm so happy you're here, and I was completely intrigued when I learned that your newest book, The Butcher, the Embezzler, and the Fall Guy, was a bit of a whodunit, a true crime yes. and investigative family <laughs> memoir. I just could not resist. So can you share a little bit about your book? Sure. I mean, you gave a you gave a good overview of it. But basically, in 1901, my paternal grandfather, Alpha LaRue Eberhardt, was recruited by George Hormel, who was the founder of what we now know as the multi-billion dollar conglomerate Hormel Foods, to come and work for him and help him build his tiny little meatpacking company into a national brand. So he and George Hormel worked very closely together for those 20 years until an embezzlement was discovered. And the embezzlement was carried out by Ransom J. Thompson. What a great name for yeah. Embezzler. <laughs> really? <laughs> really true. And over the course of about 10 years, under the eyes of these executives, their bankers, their auditors, and it wasn't until the summer of 21 that it was discovered, at which point there were 
rumors floating around that perhaps my grandfather was complicit in it. But was he? That was really my question. And this story had captivated me since I was a little girl when my father had told stories of this, about this to us, you know, growing up as kids, my brother and I. And I was, even as a little kid, I think it had all the makings of a great story. It had drama, it had crime, it had family dynamics, it had history, it had, you know, the great Midwest of our country and sort of the expansion and industry building of powerful men. It had all these things that kind of hooked me right from the age of a child. And I became really captivated with trying to figure out what really happened. So that's that's a little bit about how this book came about. Yeah, that's a great way to introduce it. And I, I wonder, you have this other book, Poetic License, which I have not read yet, but was that always the book that you thought you would write first? Or was this book the one that found the subject of this book more intriguing to you? I'm just curious about how you went about deciding. Yeah, that's actually a really great question. Nobody's asked me that before. I think in the end, I would have to say that this is the story I really wanted to write. However, I thought it would be part of Poetic License. It had appeared in my the manuscript that a development editor looked at, um, you know, now five or seven years ago, as maybe 10,000 words or something. So it was a much truncated version of the story, but I felt it was important in understanding my dad. However, she was very clear. She said, no, 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 that's your second book. This is a full <laughs> book. We're going to carve this out. So there is a little, there are a few details in Poetic License about this story, but but frankly, very little. And the focus is actually more on my grandmother because my father ended up taking care of her during the last year of her life. Uh, she mm-hmm. died at the age of 48 and my father was 18 at the time. Mm -hmm. So he was held home from college to take care of his mother. I think as I look back at it now, I feel like this is kind of the book that I wanted to get to, but I Mm -hmm. had to do Poetic License first. My relationship with my dad was complicated enough that it was gnawing at me and, Mm -hmm. um, and it had gnawed at me for a long time. And so it, I was more compelled in a sense to write that one first. And I, I think, I think Brooke Warner was right when she said, no, this is a different book. So I actually enjoyed writing this one a lot more, (laughs) um, in part because I didn't know my grandparents, so there was no complication for me. There was only complication in terms of did he do it or not, or, you know, did he have anything to do with it, the embezzlement, that is. Did your father read your first book or this book? No, he died before... Yeah, he died long before. He died in 2005. So Mm -hmm. I had read him certain chapters, which actually appear in this book. For instance, the chapter Company Town, when I'm first coming into Austin, Minnesota in a Mm. rental car with my cousin. I read him that chapter and... I, maybe there was one other, I think, but they were they were benign um, and they were descriptive. Um. <laughs> I love I love that word benign. Like when we're showing when we're showing to people who we're writing right. about, like this is benign. This is a safe yeah. zone. <laughs> of course, it's their perception, not ours, that matters. But but well. he he surprisingly, you know, when I said, "What do you what do you care if I'm right about you?" or something like that, he said, and this is actually in Poetic License, he said. Um, no, I think it's marvelous. And of course that, you know, is a sign of his narcissism. But (laughs) then then I I said, well, do you have any advice? 
And I was waiting to see if he would say anything close by to the fact of his sexually molesting me when I was 17. Mm. And he didn't. Um, but he said, no, your only job as a writer is to tell the truth. Hmm. And that has remained the best writing advice I've gotten from anybody. Mm. And it came from my dad, who mm. would not have wanted to hear my truth and probably would have shrugged it aside, which mm -hmm. is basically why I decided never to tell him. Mm. There's so much I want to talk about, and I'm trying to, I have all these ideas and all these threads that I want to pursue, so I'll do my best to try to organize myself in here in this brain okay. of mine. But I think one of the first questions I have for you is, what is it like to be a writer, to become a writer in, you know, when you have this type of history in your mm -hmm. family of a writer, when you have this legacy, it's great that he encouraged you how did you feel about really stepping into the shoes of a writer when you had a dad like this? Very intimidated. I mean, really intimidated. Um, I, you know, I journaled my whole life. By the time I was 15 or 16, I fantasized a little bit about writing a book at some time. But I remember one evening, I think I was in my young 20s, I was at my parents' house in Hanover, New Hampshire. And I looked around the room and Basically, everybody in the room had won a Pulitzer Prize, <laughs> um, you know, or no big or deal. a book, National Book Award. Or, um, and so the idea of me having anything to do with that world was just anathema. I mean, I, I just mm -hmm. couldn't comprehend how I could dive into that, whereas my brother did, another tangent, but we won't go down there. So, you know, oh, so I think he's a writer, too. He, he is a writer. He's spent his life doing other things, but he is a writer, too. But my dad never took any interest in my writing when I was growing up. I never shared anything with him. He wasn't the interested parent, really, in those kinds of ways. And so that advice that I got him, and admittedly, he was into his 90s at the time, was exactly what he would have said to a real writer, mm. <laughs> which got me thinking, well, maybe I am a real writer. And so I do credit him with that, you know, and although he didn't really know the truth that I was going to share, and he didn't know that I'd write about his father and his mother, but he he gave me advice that I have sat with for a long time. And I think when I've come up against places where I haven't really wanted to look into my own dark corners of the attic, I have been reminded of that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've tried to be as truthful about myself, too, as I'm writing about these other characters. Mm -hmm. And it's. I'm glad that you mentioned that in your first book, Poetic License, you talk a little bit about the grandparents and this story of your grandfather. And then in this book, you talk a little bit, just a little bit about the sexual abuse and the molestation. And you talk a little bit about your father's life as a yes. grown-up with you. So it's it's really a good way to to think about how we can kind of compartmentalize our stories, but also kind of intertwine them. And I think the advice you got was really good. And I think 
a lot of, not that I've read the other ones, so I'm just saying that off the cuff, but I think a lot of writers, when we finish our manuscripts, really rely on that editorial or developmental read to show us what we might not need to include in this book. It's hard. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard, but I think those outside eyes are so important. And this idea that you don't have to jam it all in, you really can trust that you'll have time and room and energy to maybe do a different book. Yes, I agree with mm-hmm. you totally. Yeah, and also this this also speaks to the idea that I would love to hear your thoughts on why she felt, I mean, I agree, but why your developmental editor or your editor, Brooke Warner, who if you want to just talk a little bit about, because I know her name and I don't know if all the listeners do, oh, but okay. who Brooke Warner okay. is and also the reason why these two stories needed to maybe be separate. Yeah, um, I don't remember the word she used exactly, but I think I can speak to that. First of all, Brooke Warner is um, both an incredible memoir editor and also the publisher of She Writes Press, my publisher. Um, And so when I started working with her on Poetic License, we spent about a year together or so working on the manuscript, tearing it fully apart and putting it all back together again. And when she made that remark, you know, my first my first response was, "What, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's ten thousand pa- not pages, but ten thousand words. I've probably got to come up with." But she had already shown me three or four places, particularly the period of my life from twenty to forty when I was married and had kids, that I couldn't just leave blank, for instance, because I didn't mm-hmm. want to write that stuff. And and so, you know, I think her point was that this this story is a bit of a mystery and it is a true crime story and although it involves family members which is interesting because we don't always hear from people involved with companies who are having scandals etc um it's it's really different than the intimate relationship i had with my dad and what that was about and how it formed me uh, Mm -hmm. into the adult that i was Yeah, and I think that, I think I want to emphasize this because I think it's so important that to understand that all the stories can matter and they all can resonate, but in order to really shine the butcher, the embezzler, and the fall guy to a high gleam and make it sort of this powerful narrative, that extra stuff that does inform who you are and really impacted your decisions and way of living and your approach to writing still doesn't necessarily earn a place in this particular story. Yeah, I think And that... could be distracting. Yeah, I think it would have been distracting, frankly. Yeah. 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 So can you talk a bit about the narrative structure, how you arrived on it for this book? And you can share a little bit about how you, the different parts that you fold in. Structure's always been really tough for me, <laughs> although I think I'm beginning to barely glimpse what it's about. Um, in the first book, I, it, could, it might have taken me 10 years instead of 20 to write it if I had known anything about structure, but I didn't. And so just to say that at first, I don't go into writing a book knowing exactly what's going to happen at the beginning or the end or necessarily in the middle. I mean, I, I know something about the story and I'm captivated by trying to kind of squirrel my way through the puzzle pieces to figure out what the story really is. And so the only things that I really knew with this book as I was writing it was that I thought it was a story about these three powerful men in Minnesota that I'd heard about, and I wanted to understand who they were, what their motivations were, what their demons were, you know, what they valued in life, those kinds of things, because I wanted to contrast the characters. And 
part of that probably came from the fact that I was, as you mentioned in the bio, working with CEOs in big companies. And so I had a lot of experience working with powerful men. Mm. You know, I was intrigued by these three men because they had some connection to me too. Mm. Um, but I also wanted the Minnesota land to be present because it's breathtakingly beautiful and vast and big to a New Englander anyway. And, you know, is the site of both ridicule by some as well as reverence <laughs> by others. So I wanted early on in the book to have all three men appear on the stage in the place. I could not figure out how to do that until really I had the full manuscript done. I'd probably done several revisions of it already until it came to me that if I started the book with my grandfather's firing, all three of them could appear in about two pages or two and a half pages or whatever. And then I could say a little bit about what I was up to and um, go from there. And, and of course, it wasn't just a story about the three men. It was also a story about my search for answers and my coming to terms with complicated legacies in my family. Mm. I didn't want it to be a braid of A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B. But I think there is a braid in a sense of, you know, the historical story and the now story, which was mm -hmm. my journey out to Austin three times and the people I met and the things I learned when I went there. So that's, but you know, <laughs> both the ending and the beginning, I don't think came to me until maybe three months before my final manuscript was due. Mm, that, so. That's affirming. <laughs> I, I mean, I just, it's so good to normalize this type of work process, right? Because it's so different for everyone. Yes, it is. And, and it's so many I, moving parts. Yeah, so many moving parts. And I, I wish many times, I wish that I was the kind of person who had a clear outline and stuck to it. But, and <laughs> I did have a bit of an outline for this book. That was an improvement on the first one. But <laughs> I didn't stick to it. And I still didn't know where I was beginning and where I was ending, really. I just knew where certain segments of it went. But on the other hand, I've I've been helped by hearing some writers, I can't think right at the minute who exactly, who sort of write this way too, don't know the beginning or the end. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just can't figure it out until, I'm, until I've written a lot. Well, I forgot who said it, and I should really remember by now because I've mentioned it on this show before, but some some would say, and there is a writer in particular who said it, that if you end up where you think you're going to end up, if that's how you end your book, then you probably haven't really discovered what you need to discover. Yes, yes, I do like that quote, whoever said it. Yeah. <laughs> whoever you are. Um, but just to give a little background, I'm going to forget some of this too, but let's see, you've got family photos in here, you've got history in here, you've got family anecdotes in here you've got actual business records from Hormel you've got I mean I think I miss it you've got your own present day exchanges with people as you're sleuthing you've got your background working as a CEO as a coach right so I mean that's just the beginning then you've got your own private relationship with your father and his his dad so, I mean, there's just so much here that you've incorporated and you did it in a in a really narrative way. It's not like, okay, and now we're going to take a moment for history and now we're going to step over here because I remember this thing someone told me. It's not like that at all. It's all woven really well. Well, thank you so much. I, I worked hard at that and I'm glad to hear it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that I know for sure, and I really learned this in my consulting work, 
inside companies is that if I find the right people to talk to in the right number, I'll have the right information I need. Now, I couldn't pick up the phone and call George Hormel or my grandfather or the embezzler, but I did have autobiographies of the embezzler and George Hormel, and I had my grandfather's letters that my father had saved um, that I had my hands on. So I had some pretty good first you know, information from these three primary characters. But to me, what really swayed me at times was talking to people in Austin, people who knew the embezzler, knew George Hormel, knew my grandfather, or whose parents knew them, but, you know, had some pretty close ties to my grandparents, let's say, in particular, to the Hormels. And so when push came to shove, when I was faced with this mass of information mm. to try to corral, I really relied a lot on my own intuition and the people that I had met who told me very specific things about each of them. And so particularly if there were conflicting facts, quote unquote facts that I found in various documents, um, I would then rely more heavily on an, an individual telling me one or the other. Um, and you know, I think I'm I think I'm helped to some degree by I absolutely do not profess to be an investigative journalist. And so I do not have to include everything. And I don't, it, you know, it needs to make sense as a story and it needs to be truthful emotionally and as well as speculatively. Mm -hmm. um, but the sort of facts that are true, true, like they're undebatable when a war happened or when the embezzlement was discovered, et cetera, those things I had, I'd had for a long time. I mean, the, the, the backbone of the story I had known for a very long time. Mm -hmm. So it was a matter really of trying to corral all this information and in a way that I could tell the story. Mm -hmm. And also to be ready to debunk or excavate anything that may not be the way that it was told to you. Right, exactly. To be open to that, that, you know, here's this story that I've been told my whole life and my brother knows too, right? How yes. much of it is true? What, yes. what is, what is, what really happened? What right. parts of writing this book did you most enjoy and what, what sections or aspects did you find more grueling? <laughs> um, well, I did love writing the first chapter. I must admit that I probably wrote it a hundred times <laughs> or maybe it was 35, but it was a lot of times. Um, it got workshopped in two different writing workshops. It got, you know, workshopped by my writing group, obviously editors. And when I finally landed on kind of the scene, then I just had so much fun creating it. The only problem was that everybody was trying to get me to make sure that the blood and guts that fall on the floor at a meatpacking plant came on the first page and I couldn't quite make it. It's like at the top of the second page. Um, but, but anyway, so, you know, I think that was really fun for me to write. Um, I also loved writing the chapter that t takes place in the bankers meeting when the bankers who are trying to determine whether the Hormel company should go on or not after this embezzlement because it owed so much money to the banks and now was down 1.2 million more from the embezzlement. I loved writing that, that scene mm -hmm. too. I think partially because I've been in a lot of boardrooms and I've been around, I was on the board of a bank, I've you know been on, on a lot of boards and stuff. So I kind of knew, I, I could speculate about that while also using George Hormel's recounting of it. 
So those are two that I loved. I think the third one that I really loved was the river rambles where I'm canoeing up the Red Cedar River, which is what my father did a lot of when he was a kid. Lots of escapades on that river. And one trip when I was out there, I was asked, do you want to do anything while you're here? And I said, I want to get out on the Cedar River. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so I had this magical afternoon with a great ally out there who could, who could sort of push me to look you know, more strongly at the hormonal actions that took place. And that I really enjoyed that too, because mm-hmm. I'm kind of an outdoor person. But challenging wise, I guess from a craft perspective, I think the ending was probably the most challenge for me. I didn't know how to end. I didn't, once I figured out that I would like to have my father's poem that he wrote about this period of time in his family's history included in the book, I needed to figure out how to position it And there were a lot of strings to pull together kind of at the end, although there are some loose ends still too. So that was, that was probably one of the most challenging from a craft point of view. Emotionally speaking, the old papers, you know, finding some documents that I hadn't found before that said certain things about my grandfather and his position, in his um, Mm -hmm. connection to the embezzler that I hadn't known, that was tough for me. And not so much the writing of it, but just the emotionality of it and trying to figure out, oh man, really? And how do I how do I deal with this now? That was probably and then I guess the other really challenging one for me was Tears in My Arugula, because it it speaks to both the time when I was in Austin, but also my relationship with my dad, which at that time was still pretty fraught. Well, I think that that would be that's a really good way to segue into this this section. Do you want to set it up and and yeah. then read from that? Sure. Yeah, I need to do a little setup, I think. So so this is in the year 2000 and it was my third trip to Austin, Minnesota. I was with my brother Dickon, and he's older than me by 5 years, and we were there on behalf of our father because the city this is a small city in the Midwest, like 20,000 people, and they were putting on a 3-day all-city celebration for my father for his poetry and for poetry in general so all of the schools were involved every child in the school system was involved the whole city was involved it was really quite an amazing thing that they did and my dad was too old to go he just really didn't have it in him anymore he he lived to be almost 102 so he was he was pretty old by then Mm -hmm. and so anyway the scene that i'm going to read takes place in Austin at that time and we in the morning had been to some classrooms where the kids were peppering us with questions about what it's like to have a famous father and about his poetry and this one class we were in of fifth graders were just magical to me they were amazing kids and so smart and so on topic and so they asked us great questions and at the very very end this little girl raised her hand and looked right at me and she said do you like your father? And I have to say I was gobsmacked by that. I had never in my life been asked if I liked my father. I think it was just assumed that everybody liked my father. And I didn't know what to say because at the time I was dealing with his sort of processing the sexual abuse when I was 17. I had complicated feelings about him. I didn't like him in a lot of ways. I also did like him in other ways. So I made it something up. but actually, I, I fended it off to my brother first, and then <laughs> she came back to me and asked me again, what about you? And I, I couldn't 
not say anything. So this picks up from there where I'm feeling quite conflicted while I'm there in, you know, presence in Austin for my dad. Dickon drives our gold van to Austin's new restaurant, Chatham's, downtown. I'm quiet in the car, absorbing the fact that I didn't have an easy answer for the little girl and how much that says about my relationship with my father. It's broken, even if few in Austin know that or need to know it, and I'm here to represent him. Seated in the middle of this busy restaurant, I eyeball the grilled veggie sandwich on the menu that comes with an arugula salad. Food changes have come to Austin's menus since my cousin Eloise and I were here and our only food choices were hormone meats. When the food comes, I scarf down my sandwich, leaving the arugula for last. The fifth grader's question has stirred me up. It bothers me that dad is so revered here, I say. Why wouldn't he be? He came from here, Dickon shrugs. He's the most famous author Austin has produced. But if he cares so much about Austin, why hasn't he come back? Why didn't he ever bring us here? My father and mother did take one trip out here in 1971 when dad was asked to speak to the senior high school class on the occasion of his 50th reunion. In his address, he took a strong stand against the war in Vietnam, imploring senior boys to refuse military service. According to mom's journal from that trip, she was afraid he'd be booted out of town. I wish he'd brought us here, I say, but how can they honor him when they don't even know him? They think they know him. His fame makes them proud. Well, it should make me proud, but it's all he cared about. He had no idea who I was. He still doesn't. My brother lifts his eyebrows. He's quiet while I'm just getting started. Dad had a story of me, but it wasn't me. When I was in fifth grade, like that little girl, you were away at boarding school. When I was in high school, you were in college. Maybe you just missed the worst of it. Tears fall in my arugula. I push away my plate and ask Dickon to pick up our check. I need air. Outside, I feel adolescent, even embarrassed by my emotion. I hadn't a clue this trip would trigger how unresolved I am about dad, nor how mixed up that lack of resolution is with understanding my grandparents. I need to get myself together. I watch cars pass and think of something my kids say, no matter what kind of day they've had before they take to the baseball diamond or lacrosse field. Game time. I will say the right things here but I'm tired of being my father's surrogate. I think I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you for reading that. Uh, and we had an interesting conversation before we began in which you asked me about my choice of excerpts for you to read. And I guess we should talk about that. Um, would you like me to just chime yeah. in a little bit about why? Yeah. Um, right. And again, uh, there's so much that I could have chosen. And I was really entertained by your book as well as a bit on the edge of my seat because, of course, you've really worked on the tension and the plot in the book. I chose this because, and, and again, I could have chosen any part and it would have been a great read. I chose this because I was listening to the, the narrator you talk about the effect this story had on you as a person, a daughter, a writer, and how the, the Gretchen Charrington you in this book is, is kind of being called to think about your family history in this place and time. And, and how you saw yourself going through that as sort of a character in your own memoir at that point. Mm -hmm. And it's just an, it's just one aspect of the narrative. But I'm curious what you would have preferred to read and, and why maybe <laughs> you didn't think that this would have been a good call. 
No, I actually really like your call. Um, I, I, I was surprised when I saw it because it's not something that others have asked me to read. But I like the reason why you asked, and I, I think I'm I think I'm getting this right from you. That that scene does show, first of all, my complicitness in some ways with the reverence for my father that everyone felt for many 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 years, and then the sheer agony of having to really confront who he had actually been to me and mm. having to face that both you know in terms of a dad that I adored when I was little and the public adoration for him now mm -hmm. since the book since Poetic License came out I've heard from lots and lots of people who knew my dad and I've gotten more stories and etc cetera, etc cetera. but certainly growing up I you know I think he, he was sort of in the limelight, you know, from the 50s through the, I don't know, maybe the 80s, when in the prime of his career. And so confronting that public view of him was something that was really hard for me to do. You know, I was afraid mm -hmm. I would ruin the family. But then, you know, I had to realize that, well, maybe it had already been ruined, you know, by other <laughs> things. But um, anyway, so it was a surprise to me that you asked, but I think it actually is also emblematic of having these two memoirs which aren't technically tied together at all you wouldn't have to read both mm. uh, you wouldn't have to read the first one to read the second one um but they are tied through my father you know because mm. he's the subject of the first one and he's the reason i have interest in the subject of the second one so so my father is pivotal in some ways in both books Yes, and I also think that another another quality that I didn't touch on but that you reminded me of is this is a very good example of the divided self mm. and memoir mm. and the divided self as a character as well as the narrator because you're there to celebrate in the town the, the contribution your dad made and, and his fame. But you're torn. It's very clear that you're torn, even in the narration of, of yourself going through those those activities there mm -hmm. with the kids and stuff, that right. it feels kind of funny. And then this this kid, this fifth grader, right. completely disarms you with this question, which completely. kids can do. And it's sort of like the worst question she could ask you because it stops you short. But it's also the best question because as a reader who's invested in your story, I'm, I'm like, wow, you know, you went right for it. Now, look, another memoirist, another writer could have omitted that question. Mm -hmm. Absolutely yeah. could have omitted that question. No. And we wouldn't have been any the wiser as a right. reader, right? Right, because right. it was a fun scene otherwise. But this, right, but yeah, it was. You show the complexity, <laughs> and then you also take the reader out of that scene into the next scene where you're actually ruminating on this and grappling with what is coming up for you, mm -hmm. which gives you an even bigger opportunity to sink your teeth into this complexity. Yeah, true. Good and point. that's a divided self right there because you're you're I mean in so many ways and I would have to sit and think about it to be more articulate about it I'm no, just kind of off the cuffing great. again but I think that it's important because then we get to see you in relationship to your brother to your father yes. to your work as a writer and as a woman because the other thing is in a way as a writer I feel like when you're doing a story like this or any memoir we're in a way the hero of the story in a sense because right. we're bringing all this we're delivering the goods to our reader but we're also, we owe the reader all that other 
the other part, the underbelly. Yes. Yes. And I think that you are delivering even more by allowing yourself to squirm a little bit and to show us how human you are and how conflicted you are. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it, I mean, you know, again, I, I think some of this came from my career when I would be in a room and somebody would just say something that was perfect for that moment that would just make the team turn on a dime. And I got good at seeing those things. And so here was this little kid, it didn't matter that she was 10 years old or whatever. Um, you know, she had asked the perfect question at the perfect mm -hmm. moment and didn't let me get away with it either, really. Right. Um, so I had, uh, just as a little aside, when I was out in Austin for the book launch, I um, tried, I was in touch with the teacher of that class and sent her the chapter to see what she thought and make sure that it seemed pretty close to, you know, what had, what she remembered had happened. And it was so wonderful to reconnect with her. And I had this little dream that I would meet that little girl who would now be <laughs> 35 or something. I didn't, but um, anyway, you know, I can say more about that at the end, but just... yeah, and also that I love that you you sent it to the teacher and double checked. I I mean, when we have the opportunity, it's a it's a nice extra little bonus yeah. to be able to do that. I also forgot to mention, and I, I'm curious how intentional this was, and I know I'm going long, but there's just a couple more things I need to ask you. Your work as an executive coach, you know, for CEOs, is mm -hmm. that correct? Is that yeah? I was an of... advisor, really. Mm -hmm. it was, yeah ties so well you've tied it in so well with the fact that you're okay. dealing with ceos in the book and you take what you know from your career and and kind of shine that light onto what you're telling in this story did you arrive on that pretty early or did someone help you with that like understanding that what you do in your life what you did for mm. your career actually gives you an extra special kind of fly on the wall yeah i perspective i knew that pretty early I, yeah. I thought that it also gave me credibility with, you know, I mean, I'm writing about a major company in the world. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so there were cautions about that and, you know, trying to be careful, but at the same time, be honest, et cetera. But I also knew that that would probably help in terms of this story because I could bring that angle to it. And mm -hmm. it wasn't just about only a granddaughter. I, I also knew something about companies and CEOs and what makes them tick, et cetera. Yeah, mm -hmm. I knew that pretty early. Mm -hmm. And toward the end of the book, you write, quote, what do we do with our complicated family legacies? How do we move on in light of how much we can never know? I found few final answers and no easy truth. So knowing what you know now about your family, how do you feel about the search you went on to write this book? And, and what have you learned about what makes you tick as a writer? <laughs> well, this is the thing that I wanted to say that I mentioned I might say later. So the one thing that I believe now having written two memoirs is that a memoir closes at a point in time in the author's life, but the story continues on. So after the book comes out, you know, it seems like the story ends. You read the book and you says the end or whatever at the end, mm -hmm. but the story actually continues. So you hear about, you hear from people who maybe knew the characters you go out to Austin again, as I did in June, and you see things anew, some of them mostly the same, some of them a little bit different. You know, you maybe you get 
new research information that comes in through some database that you're connected to or the historical society out there for instance the woman there is is just she's been fantastic and sends me things she's still sending me things and so you know i believe that a memoir I like the idea that a memoir has a life after it comes out, that there's more to all of our stories that continue as we grow and develop and hopefully, you know, become more human as we um, go through life and we can change our minds about things and we can, I I don't think I would ever write either of these books again. Hmm. Uh, Like, I don't think there'd be that much change, but, you know, maybe an essay or something. You know, I, I wrote an essay for the Huffington Post that came out after Poetic License, not, not too, too long ago, actually. And to me, that was a little bit of a response to the book, given some new information. So, I mean, how do I feel about it? I feel kind of both resolved, but forever unresolved. Yeah. Uh, because, <laughs> That's probably you know. <laughs> the best description I've ever heard. I feel like I tied it up and got it done. But by the same token, I am still invested in the story and I will continue to be for years to come, I think. You know, I guess what I I feel, um, you know, the other thing that really pleased me was just having the opportunity to fall in love with a set of grandparents who I never knew. Uh, they were both dead long before I was born. And so I had heard about them, how wonderful they were, and I really wish that I had known them. And so I'm I'm grateful to the time spent to get to know them, both for their flaws and for their strengths. Mm-hmm. I guess learning about what makes me tick, I mean, I think, I think a lot of that I really learned in my career with CEOs. I just, I, I'm a truth seeker. I am trying to help people, groups, companies figure out who they really are and confront their own fallacies in mythology. <laughs> Um, and in that doing that, it, that really helped me confront my own family mythology. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that career really prepped me well for being a memoirist in a very mm. strange and roundabout way that you never would imagine. Um, but it did. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, think, I think for me, what makes me tick is to try to get down in the deep layers of what was going on and try to find something that no one's really talked about yet. Mm -hmm. I was wondering uh, if you had any advice for memoirists who might be juggling tons of material like you did and you know what how you know I'm curious how you kept going when it became really unwieldy like what made you keep going and if there's a any kind of organizing principle that you relied on to you know keep you to keep you going okay and not getting too befuddled with all the material. Right. Well, I definitely got very befuddled with all the material. Um, <laughs> and I, I often felt like when I was at my most confused state, that was the most creative place to be because it meant, meant that I had, to, I had to look for something different to shed light on a particular situation or I had to call up another person and find something new out. Um, so there's a point where I feel like I'm in chaos, and then there's a point where the chaos kind of settles. And for me, I don't know that I have a magic answer for this question about for other memoirs, except that I do believe it takes a lot of time. And I, I think that, you know, particularly the more information you have, if you want to do it justice, 
there is a certain amount of time you're going to have to contribute to reading through it and mm. learning about it. And so my kind of memoir isn't sort of a quick write, I don't think. And, mm -hmm. you know, and then, I mean, this is general, but certainly reading, you know, 25, 50, 100 memoirs is a really good thing to do if you're writing one. Mm. Uh, I just think that there are such fabulous memoirs out there and writers who've written them. And I learned so much. I, I didn't get an MFA, but I read 100 memoirs. And Ooh, I Do you want to share <laughs> a few that you really think helped you a lot? I mean, sure, I know that yeah. you knew that I was going to ask you for recommendations and knowing that you've read over 100, I know it'll be hard for you <laughs> to pick, but maybe you can just select a few that you would yeah. you think that memoirs should really read. Well, I have a few categories. And so, you know, hopefully this is helpful. But um, so first of all, I, I read a lot of memoirs by daughters of famous men. Mm. So from Linda Gray Sexton's Searching for Mercy Street about her mother, Anne Sexton, to uh, Susan Cheever's book, Home Before Dark, about John Cheever, to more recently, Lisa Brennan Jobs' memoir about her father, Steve Jobs. Um, I think it's called Small Fry, if I remember correctly. Um, and so I was trying to find a way that I could look at how I might approach writing about a famous father. And there weren't a lot of them out when I got started, but there were a sufficient number that I you know, I had some clue of what others did anyway. I mean, I think a lot of the classics are fabulous, but the ones that really knocked me off my feet kind of were uh, Nick Flynn's Another Bullshit Night in Suck City, Patti Smith's Just Kids, I mean, anything by Patti Smith, but both of those were really meant a lot. I love Kiesi Lehman's Heavy. I love Fouctron, Saigon. I really like Jeanette Winterston's Why to Be Happy When You Can Be Normal. <laughs> but I'll say increasingly, I'm turning to some graphic memoirs. And, you know, like Alice Bechdel's Are You My Mother is terrific, kind mm, of classic. Yes. There's a new one out that I just found. A friend of mine sent it to me, actually. And this woman, is, the writer, is in Santa Fe, I think. It's called Queen of Snails. And I just loved it. And I think you would like it, actually. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I, what, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think it's really important to ride, read very broadly. And um, not just in types of memoirs, but also obviously fiction and creative nonfiction. Um, I, I just feel that that is expansive of our imagination. Mm -hmm. It helps expand our imagination and it helps give us some templates in a way for how really good writers write. And I think that's the only way to get better at writing is to keep reading, basically. Yeah. Yes, I think so. And it's actually, it's a, it takes a while, but it does kind of percolate in there. It right. really does. It's kind of the thing you can do all the time without working too hard yes. that actually improves you as yes. a writer. Uh, that's yeah. a great, great way of saying it. Yep. Yeah. So what about, before I ask you where people can find you, oh. um, because those, those were just amazing resources. I will put them all in the show notes because you gave okay, me a whole bunch. Great. And I feel like you gave me the advice. I was going to ask you for advice, but I think you gave me advice. So unless you have like a one-liner that you want to add that's oh good. I think the only other advice really is and maybe other people on your show have said this already so excuse me but um, I think it's really important particularly if you're writing a tough family story to not share it with 
those members you're writing about until you have a book contract. You really don't need to show it to anybody until mm. then. And mm. I didn't know that when I started. I made a couple mistakes with that. Nothing that, you know, I didn't get disowned or anything, but people have been. And mm. so I just think it's really important to remember that until you have a book contract and this thing is actually going to come out into the world, there is no reason to share it with anybody that you don't really trust that isn't maybe potentially connected in the book itself. I second that. I really do. You know, I wanted to ask you, you can answer if you want, how it was to write about Hormel. Mm. And if you had to, I know that's like a really giant can of worms. <laughs> yeah. I open, but I can't not ask you because I'm sure right. anyone realizing, whoa, this book is about Hormel and you did all this research and, and you're a smart lady, you know, you've been, you know, you know how to cover yourself legally. If there's anything you would say or that people should be aware of. Well, it was daunting to think about in some ways. However, I also, you know, because of my career being inside companies, I wasn't probably as daunted as someone else might have been. What I felt, and, and what, this is maybe another piece of advice in a sense for other writers, is that it's the relationships that matter. And I couldn't, I, I really couldn't get much access to the hormone foods right now, except mm -hmm. through its legal department. But there are other organizations in Austin that are sort of connected to the Hormel Foods Company, like the Spam Museum and the Hormel Historic Home. And wherever I could, I tried to be honest with the Hormel-related people about what I was writing about, including that I was shedding light on George Hormel's strengths and weaknesses, in my view, mm -hmm. his strengths and weaknesses, as well as my grandfather's and the embezzlers, which are more obvious. And that you know, I was I was trying to be as factual as possible, but I also wanted to, you know, uh, preserve my creative license, so to speak, to to write the story that I thought was true. And to me, so I guess the advice is only if you are going to be writing about a big company or um, maybe a person who's really famous or something like that, it's worth thinking about who's around that company or who is in that company or around the person with whom you can relate and try to connect honestly with them about what you're trying to do. And mm -hmm. mostly in my experience, people have then been willing to talk to me and, mm -hmm. you know, have been willing to support. I mean, I would not have gotten the images from the Hormel Foods Company nor from the Hormel Historic Home if I hadn't done some of those things, I don't think. So, you know, even if it's just a matter of getting some images that I really wanted for the book, those relationships in the, to the degree that I was um, formulating them and maintaining them over a period of time, so it wasn't just a flash in the pan contact, I think make a difference. And that's all we can ask for really, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, access, information. Yes. Be, you know, being clear about what your goals are and, and, and not, and, and being above board, right? Like, yeah, yeah, I guess doing, Saying and I'm doing saying. what you're, you're gonna do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, wow, okay, so where can people find you, Gretchen? Um, well, the easiest would just be my website, probably. So www.gretchencharrington.com, and Charrington has one R. Okay, I will put all of that in the show notes with all those beautiful memoirs you recommended. And thank you so much for, for really taking some time to 
shine a light on your process and what it was like for you in all these different respects. I really just had a great time talking with you. I did too, Renee. I really appreciate your time and preparation for this as well. I've loved talking with you. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.